The text for the sermon this day is taken from Luke chapter 20, which you heard a little bit ago. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So back when I was in seminary, we had to take classes that were called homiletics. The purpose of these classes were they were teaching us how to preach. And so and one of the classes we had to take was homiletics two. This was usually reserved for your fourth year of seminary, and it's during that time that you focused on preaching parables and miracles. And the reason is, is because parables and miracles are the ones that have the most pitfalls for a preacher. There, are, there is a lot of bad sermons out there on miracles and parables. And so they were making sure that we don't make a fool out of ourselves when we preach it. So, one of the things is, when you look at a parable, one of the first things you look for to try to, to interpret it, to understand it, is look for the crazy. What I mean is, look for something in the, in the parable that is very unusual. So, for example, last Sunday, the gospel lesson was the parable of the prodigal son. And so if you were to look for the, the crazy, the unusual, it's actually right at the very beginning of the, the parable. It's not that the younger son demanded the inheritance. We could probably think of bratty, spoiled kids or whatever that you could almost imagine doing that. But the crazy is that the father actually granted what the son requested. But, then, but what about today's parable? The parable of the tenants. Where is the crazy? Well, the crazy is in the logic of the tenants. This is what I would call caveman logic. They have this idea that if they kill the son of the master of the vineyard, that they will receive all of his inheritance. Does anybody think that that's logical? I mean, do any of you think, hey, I'll bet you if I took out Warren Buffett's kid, family, he would give me all of his money. No, he's going to send you to jail, and you are, and he, if, I don't know if Nebraska has a death penalty, but he might go for it, if it does. I mean, but this is their logic. They think that by killing the son, they could get the inheritance. Well, the parable, so that's the first, so we got the crazy part, and we're going to come back to it. The next thing is you have to figure out, who does everyone in the parable point to? All of the people are pointing to different individuals. So, who's the master of the vineyard? God the Father. Who are the, who is, who's the tenants? If, you're, if you heard the text earlier, the people who were listening to it figured out very quickly that the tenants were them, and they weren't happy that Jesus was saying it against them. So, and it's, it's kind of a little bit of an irony, is that they're mad at him because it's saying that they're going to kill the son of the master, and that's exactly what they end up plotting to do after Jesus tells the parable. So kind of one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. But who are the servants? Well, see, the parable of the vineyard, so he's talking about a vineyard here. 
The, vi- the imagery of a vineyard comes from the book of Isaiah. And it's, it's speaking of the people of Israel. And Jesus is speaking to them, condemning the history of Israel and their history of rejecting the prophets. So, for example, if you happen to pay, listen to our daily scripture meditations that are on Facebook, we have recently been going, th- listen, going through Jacob and his drama with Laban, his father-in-law. Laban knows that Jacob is a man of God, that he is a prophet. And yet, what does Laban do? He takes advantage of him again and again and again for 20 years. Jacob would eventually have a son named Joseph. Well, he actually had 12 sons. But there's one named Joseph who had dreams. And he, with those, from those dreams, he was a prophet. And how did his brothers handle his prophecies? Now, there's kind of details as to kind of understand why they reacted the way they did. But their reaction is they threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. That's a, little, that's a little overboard for sibling rivalry, but that's what they did. Moses, you read Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, and it's a basically an ongoing drama between him and the, the Hebrews, the, peop, the children of Israel, rejecting him as the prophet and rejecting some of the messages he had said. This is a whole story through the, New, through the Old Testament. You had the same things happening with Samuel, with Nathan, with Elijah, with Elisha, with um, Daniel, with Jeremiah, which we heard a few weeks ago, how they tried to kill him for the things he was saying. And so Jesus is telling this parable that these are the servants that God had sent to you, and what did you do? You beat them up, you threw them out, you treated them horribly. And now he's telling them, you are going to kill now the Son of God. And Jesus is telling this parable during Holy Week. It's right in between Palm Sunday and Good Friday that he is telling this. And so he knows that at the end of the week, they are going to kill the Son of God. They are going to kill Jesus. Now, first off, you have to remember that Jesus is in control. Everything you hear in there and everything you hear all the way until we get all the way through Good Friday and Easter and everything, Jesus is in control of everything. They could not do anything that they are doing unless he allowed them to do it. He is letting them have their way. He is letting them commit all of the evil and wickedness they are doing, but ultimately he is going to use their evil and their wickedness for his design, for his plan. And see, there's a glimpse of what he is going to do, what he is doing when he's on the cross. When he's on the cross... Jesus is being nailed to the cross. He is the only person in the entire history of the world that could actually say that they were good, that they were innocent, that they were without sin. 
So why do bad things happen to good people? There's only one good person in the history of the world, and that was Jesus. And yet he was hanging on that cross. If you were here last Wednesday, you remember hearing about Barabbas, and Jesus is suffering the punishment that was Barabbas's punishment. So he is suffering the punishment of the worst of murderers, even though he had never committed one single sin. And there he is being nailed to the cross. He is going to die in agony over a period of six hours. And by the way, if you're thinking during the trial that there's only some people are guilty, every single person in Jesus in that time bears the weight of guilt for Jesus being crucified. There's obviously the crowd who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. There's the disciples who abandoned him. There is Peter who denied he even knew who Jesus was. There's, there is no one in the entirety of Jesus' trial. You can read it in all four Gospels. You will not find one case of somebody speaking up in defense of Jesus. Except for actually one person. Do you know who's the only person who spoke in defense of Jesus? Pontius Pilate. He defended him again and again, but because of fear, he cowered and he gave in. And he, sometimes people are like, well, what about the women who are crying at the cross? Well, if you read in Luke's account, when Jesus sees these women at the cross, he condemns them. He speaks against them because these are not women who are crying because they love Jesus. In the first century, there was actually a profession. You were paid to cry at funerals. Because the whole idea was the more people who cried at your funeral, that meant you were more important. And so they would have people that their job was to weep and wail and cry at crucifixions. So Jesus is speaking to these people who they don't care that Jesus is getting crucified. They just want a paycheck, and they're really good at crying to earn it. So that's who he's speaking to. There is no one that bears innocence. And yet, what does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The parable that Jesus is telling, the caveman logic of the tenants in his parable. It is insane that anybody would think it, but the most more insane thing is that the unknown love of our God actually is fulfilling that logic. See, Jesus is going to the cross for a reason. He is going to bear the sin of the world. And understand that you're, when I say those people that time, they bear guilt of the cross, so do you. Now you didn't live, you obviously were not alive on April 3rd of 33 AD. I know some of us are up there in years, but we're not that far. Jesus, the reason why we bear, you all bear guilt is because every single sin you have ever committed is on Jesus. 
If no one ever sinned, then Jesus would not have to be crucified. So when you hear, think of the nails being driven into his hands and his feet, you think of that hammer striking, that noise, that is your sin. Being the wrath of God that belongs to you being placed upon him. But see, this is the unknown love of God. That by his blood, by his death that is brought about, about because of our sin, because of our own wretchedness, by that death, yes, you are heirs of the Heavenly Father. Caveman logic gives way to an unknown love. A love beyond all imagination, beyond all fantasy. Which if you can't tell, I'm playing off that hymn we just sang. Which, if that is a great hymn, if you have a hymnal at home or whatever, just sit there and meditate on it. It's basically a preview of the next couple weeks as we go through Holy Week and everything. It's a powerful, powerful... It's actually originally was a poem, but it's a very powerful hymn. But... The unknown love is that by the death of the Son, of the Master of creation, you are made heirs of eternity. You are made heirs of the Heavenly Father by the blood of Jesus, delivered to you in the means of grace, the baptism, and the proclamation, the word, and the Lord's Supper. He went to that for you that you may be an heir. And you see right there on the, the, on the screen, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So that was in the parable. Jesus speaking it to the people. And so what he's telling them, Jesus is the cornerstone. What does that mean? Is that he is connecting two groups of people. That him going to the cross, he is not dying just for the people of the vineyard, he is dying for those who are outside of the vineyard. In other words, it is for Jews and Gentiles. And he is the cornerstone that connects those two walls. In other words, salvation is not just for Jews, it is for Gentiles as well. And by the way, if you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. So which means, this is Jesus telling you that salvation is for you. But he's also saying that the cornerstone will crush. Those who stand apart from Christ, those who do not confess him as the one and only true way of salvation, those who do not confess to the one and only God, they will be crushed by the wrath of God. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus is speaking to that. Which, by the way, is why I began with that video. It's kind of a cutesy version. But there's a reason I had it at the beginning instead of at the end, because it doesn't flow as well as Passion Sunday goes through. But this next couple weeks, you have a lot of opportunities to invite people 
to come to church with you. No, with you. Don't say, hey, you should come to church. I'm not going to be there. But, you know, come, invite them to come so you can sit with the person who you are inviting so they don't feel awkward and out of place. They already have somebody there ready to say, hey, how's it going? You have a Lenten service this Wednesday. You have Palm Sunday services. You have Monday Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil. And our Easter services, and in between, there's an Easter breakfast, which we're going to have kind of a, a new and unique one, which you'll kind of, hopefully, will be pretty cool. You have plenty of opportunities to invite people to hear of Jesus, to hear of this law that is unknown, not just because it is a law beyond all imagination and fantasy, but because it is actually unknown by people in this world. There are people that you regularly interact with. And if you ever want, if you think, well, we're Ida County, you know, we got all these churches, most people are Christian, there's probably nobody here. On average, statistically speaking, only one in five people in Ida County are in church on a given Sunday. One in five is all. So that means if you see five random people that live in Ida County, you're the only one that went to church this week. You are surrounded by opportunities. And it can be as simple as, hey, why don't you come to church with me? You know how many people are never, ever invited? And would love it if somebody would? And guess what? They show that, I think there's a study, that 83% of people said they would go to church if somebody would just invite them. So that means we're not doing it. We invite them to hear of this unknown love. I'm going to tell you how great this love is. The love of Jesus. Love for the loveless. Which you know who the loveless is? You, me. Love for the loveless shown that you may be lovely. This is how great the love is. Is if this when I was back in High school, I went to the Iowa District West Youth Gathering. It was down in Des Moines. And one of the speakers, I always re kind of remember this little thing he did. He invited one of the high schoolers up. And he said, he says, like, what's your name? He's like, uh, it's Michelle. He goes, can I tell you something, Michelle? If everybody in the whole world remains sinless except for you, you are the only person that had ever sinned in the history of the world. Do you know what? Jesus Christ would still suffer and die on the cross, go through everything that was needed in order to save just you. In other words, Jesus died for you collectively, but he died for all of you, Michelle's, so to speak. That is the unknown Love, the love beyond all fantasy, beyond all imagination. The caveman logic that by the death of the son of the master of the vineyard, you have inheritance. Yes, that is how great the love of our God is. That through the death of his son, who died willingly, he died for you, that the inheritance of the father is yours. Until the day comes, when we enjoy 
in eternity, in the resurrection of the body, may we be witnesses of this love to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen.